Good afternoon. It's time for us to do some serious study together this afternoon. During the morning hour, we don't have quite the time. During the afternoon is the time for us to think carefully about some very important subjects. But before we do that, I'm going to share with you some items that are totally unrelated to our subject this afternoon. You can put them under the category of uh, the times in which we live, if you want to. In 1782, Thomas Jefferson wrote this, It is error alone which needs the support of government. Truth can stand by itself. Subject opinion to coercion, whom will you make your inquisitors? Fallible men, men governed by bad passions, by private as well as public reasons. And why subjected to coercion? To produce uniformity. But is uniformity of opinion desirable? No more than that of face and stature. Introduce the bed of Procrustes then, and as, as there is danger that the large men may beat the small, make us all of a size by lopping the former and stretching the latter. Difference of opinion is advantageous in religion. The several sects perform, perform the office of a censor over each other. Is uniformity attainable? Millions of innocent men, women, and children since the introduction of Christianity have been burnt, tortured, fined, imprisoned, yet we have not advanced one inch towards uniformity. What has been the effect of coercion? To make one half the world fools and the other half hypocrites. To support roguery and error all over the earth. Wisdom. Wisdom from a couple of centuries ago. And yet we never seem to learn the lessons that forcing uniformity doesn't produce unity. That all, all it does is make people either robots or frustrated rebellious rebellions. Pat Robertson, some of his recent statements, when Ariel Sharon was uh, struck down by the coma in which he is uh, right now, the stroke and coma in which he is, here was Pat Robertson. God says, this land belongs to me. You'd better leave it alone. Because, of course, Sharon was giving away part of Israel to the Palestinians. So this was God's judgment upon the prime minister of Israel for getting rid of parts of the sacred land that had to be restored to Israel so Jesus could come. And then when he talks about the Venezuelan president, who I guess is not such a good character, if he thinks we're trying to assassinate him, I think that we really ought to go ahead and do it. It's a whole lot cheaper than starting a war. Christianity at its best. There is Christianity at work. The times in which we live. A woman by the name of Ann Coulter. I am often asked if I still think we should invade their countries, kill their leaders, and convert them to Christianity. The answer is now more than ever. How do we take the gospel to the world? Well, you've just heard one sample of how it should be done. And one more comment. Today, the same churches that have preached against the necessity of keeping the commandments are urging their public display. Churches that claim to be New Covenant put the commandments on stone monuments, so very Old Covenant, and fail to teach the New Covenant promise of the law written in the human heart. By necessity, since American churches have largely abandoned the real new covenant, the promise of a heart transformed by love and brought into obedience to Christ, they have lost the power of God and now rely upon the power of the state to perform, to promote morality and even religion. Isn't it strange, the times in which we live? 
Those who have said the law was nailed to the cross want it now in every office and every courtroom and every school in the land on stone monuments. That's where the law should be placed. We live in some very, very interesting times, don't we? Are we fully awake? We'd better be. These are times like never before in the history of the United States since Puritan times. And are we wanting to go back there and discover how religion was done? All right, few announcements. Number one, uh, we will have two meetings this afternoon separated by a little bit of a break. So that is our schedule for today. Uh, the titles of the two meetings have already been announced. Number two, if you are interested in any of our tapes or books or CDs or DVDs or whatever we have with us, there are two ways of accessing them today. We will not go until sundown with a regular meeting. So the only way to look at our materials would be if you happen to stay until sundown in discussion or if you want to come back after sundown for a few moments, we will be here after sundown. So that is one way to take a look at what we have. If you can't stay and are interested in some of our tapes or materials, then by all means talk to my wife or my son before you get away this afternoon, and they can let you know what can be done. So those are the two ways of accessing our materials this afternoon. Also, I bring with me little booklets and pamphlets and articles on various subjects that if you are interested in something to take home with you for your own personal study, just ask me, and I would be delighted to share some of these with you this afternoon. I will leave that to your discretion. And finally, uh, my website is available for anybody who wants to dig into these subjects more deeply. Some of the material I'm covering this weekend is on my website, and you are welcome to use it as you want to. DennisPreby.com is my website. You have the correct spelling of my name on the paper in front of you. So that is available for anybody who wishes to have it. All right, we're ready to begin. The subject I'm talking about this afternoon is the most important subject I speak about. There is no subject I talk about that is more important than this subject this afternoon. There are a lot of things we can be wrong about, but we better not be wrong about this one. I believe it will make the difference between those who survive the end of time and those who do not. That's how important this subject is. You know, there are a lot of things that we're going to learn and unlearn on the other side that we thought we had right now. We're going to have a lot of re-educating to do on a number of subjects. And the Lord can save us even in our ignorance, even when we misinterpret some things. There will be a plenty lot of people in heaven who will never have kept a Sabbath day on this earth. Uh, and God will do a lot of re-educating. But I don't think, I don't think in this time in which we live, anyone who is muddy, unclear, confused about this subject will survive what is happening. That's how important this subject is. Our past General Conference president said this, This question lies at the root of most denominational tensions. Now, what is his question? What shall we do with Ellen White? At the root of most denominational tensions. The key word affecting one's answer to this question, all right? It's not enough to ask the question, do we believe in Ellen White? Do we believe she was inspired? Do we believe that she was received messages from God? No, that's not enough. The key word affecting one's answer to this question, what shall we do with Ellen White? Is authority. 
What authority do her writings hold over my conscience and my life? What is her proper authority in our lives? In Ministry Magazine, this was stated, There is a tendency now among us of removing almost any definitive role for the gift given Seventh-day Adventists in the work of Ellen White, based upon the substantive questions that have surfaced about her use of sources, editors, and secretaries. It has become an expanding, politically correct inclination in broadening circles to decry any definitive role for Mrs. White's work among us. Even the devotional value of her work is to all intents and purposes appreciably diminished in the Church by this tendency." There is a major, major shift in our thinking about her authority in our own personal lives in the past 20 years. I came across an interesting article in an old review, What Academy Students Think of Ellen White. A survey was taken by one of the associate secretaries of the Ellen White estate on a large uh, Adventist academy. I have my guess as to where it is, but he didn't say. Five different positions were given by the person taking the survey about how inspiration works. When God gives a message, what happens? Does the prophet write words? Does the prophet write thoughts? What happens when God gives a message and the prophet writes it out? In other words, how does inspiration work? Five different models of inspiration. What I found was interesting is that of all the percentages, 20% were unsure on everything, on all of the five, 20% were unsure. On the one position that was biblically accurate, the one position that was biblically accurate, 34% agreed with it, 30% disagreed, and 36% were unsure. A third, a third, a third. On 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 the one position that was accurate according to the Bible. And as I read this, I said, I wonder if that's just true of academy students, or is that perhaps true of a church at large in which we don't know how inspiration really works? If we were asked the question, how would we respond? Would we be in the same category of one-third agreeing, one-third disagreeing, and one-third uncertain of what it really is all about? Now, if you were to visit a seminary library just about anywhere in the world, you would find a whole shelf of books dedicated to one subject, the search for the historical Jesus. Not just one or two books, but just a large shelf of books on one subject. Sounds like a great subject, doesn't it? The search for the historical Jesus. But you see, there wouldn't be a whole shelf of books on something which was a given. It's only because there is controversy on the subject that a lot of books are written on the subject. And what is the issue at stake? When you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where do you find the real Jesus? In which chapters? In which miracles? In which stories? In which teachings? And which parts of those same Gospels were added later by well-meaning Christians to flesh out the story of Christ a little bigger than it really was. In other words, how can we distinguish the historical, the real Jesus, from the Christ of faith? That's the term that is used. The Christ of the believers that built up their legends and stories and portrayed them as actual realities. 
How can we, as we read through the Gospels, sort it out? The real stories, the real teachings, the real miracles, and the added stories, and the added miracles that never happened, and the added teachings of Christ. We've got to know how to sort all that out, you see, so we can follow the teachings of the real Jesus, not the artificial or the added teachings that were added by well-meaning Christians in the second and third centuries. There is a group that meets regularly. It's called the Jesus Seminar. They meet a couple of times a year. Great title, the Jesus Seminar, studying the life of Christ. And their attempt as they present papers is to sort all this out, sort out the difference between the historical Christ the actual Christ, and the legendary Christ. Well, they came up with some interesting conclusions. When they asked the question, what in the Gospel of Mark can all of you scholars in attendance today agree on? All of you agree, 100% agreement, was actually a teaching, an authentic statement of Jesus. We want unanimity on this. We don't want majority opinion. How many, how, how much of the Gospel of Mark can you be absolutely sure Jesus taught? Well, they came up with one sentence they could agree on in the book of Mark. One sentence that all of them together could say, yes, raise their hand and say, yes, that one is authentic. In every other part, there were some disagreements here, there, or somewhere. Then they tried the Gospel of John. They found zero in the Gospel of John that they could agree on 100% was authentic as a statement or a teaching of Jesus. That is the reality of historical studies of the Gospels today. And I found a picture, it had nothing to do with this subject, and you might even not be able to see it too well back there, but that's our Bible. Can you see what has happened to our Bible? Cut up into little bits and pieces and parts. And all of a sudden, we have one group saying, this is authentic, and one group saying, no, no, this is authentic over here, and the other group saying, no, this part is authentic. This part of Isaiah is correct. This part of Isaiah was added. This part of Genesis was written by one author. This part of Genesis by another author. And, of course, Deuteronomy was written way down at the end of the priestly era, just before they went into captivity. All kinds of opinions as to how the Gospels and the Bible were written. And I just ask you a simple question. As the result of all these years and hours and, and efforts of books written and papers presented, has it helped Christian faith or destroyed Christian faith? What is the problem? What is the problem with all of this scholarly study, this endeavor to sort it all out? Where does the final authority lie as we begin to approach the study of this book? Where do we have final authority in terms of my life, my conscience, and standing before God in the judgment? In this book? Which parts of this book? Which chapters? Which teachings? The bottom line, the final authority is right here in my mind. This book is no longer my authority. I have decided what parts of this book I like. Martin Luther did that too, believe it or not. The great reformer that we're all indebted to. Without Martin Luther, we wouldn't exist today as a people. But Martin Luther said that there were certain parts of the Bible more valuable than others. And of course, the book of James, with its emphasis on law, was one of those straw epistles not to be reckoned with, not to be accepted as of the same authority as Paul's writings by any means. 
That is rampant throughout Christianity today. And at that point, no longer is this book my authority, I am this book's authority. I am deciding which parts of it are valid, which parts of it I will be judged by, and which parts of it I will ignore as irrelevant and unnecessary. My mind is the final authority, and that is the ultimate god of the scientific age today. You see, there have been gods aplenty down in past years. The gods of the Old Testament were the idols of the countries around them. The gods of the Middle Ages were the traditions and the authority of the church in its teachings. The gods of our modern age is the mind of man since the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment has brought so many great things to us today, but it has also brought the idolatry of the mind of man. And we are the final authority in everything. Nothing will, per, will, will, will get any higher than our thinking processes. I read this statement, and I think it was so well put, again, by our past General Conference president. If we accept the Bible as God's word, we must accept it all, whether or not we like what it says. To us, the scripture should be the ultimate revelation of God's will for our lives. Without our uncompromised acceptance of scriptural authority and our fundamental beliefs, only a shadow of Adventism will remain for our coming generations. Uncompromised acceptance of authority. See, the issue is not, do I believe that this Bible is the word of God? Every one of the Jesus Seminar people will agree to that. Every one of them will agree that this is the word of God. But they have different meanings for that phrase, the word of God. Some say it contains the word of God. Others say it is the word of God. Does it have authority? Key word, authority, authority, authority. I came across this letter in Ministry Magazine by a pastor of a church in Kansas, a non-Adventist church. I found it fascinating. God lies beyond our understanding and calls us to trust his spirit to lead us beyond the place that we can see clearly. Whether I accept Daniel as the product of verbal inspiration in the 7th century or spiritual inspiration in the 2nd, it doesn't really matter. Now think about that. Was Daniel given, was he given a vision in the 7th century about nations to come on the scene and times and dates and what they would do going down to the end of time? Or did he write in the 2nd century after all of these great nations had come on the scene and passed it off as visions of the future, pretending to see the future when he was really writing history? It doesn't really matter. He says, which way it was. Whether I accept Esther as history, legend, or folktale, doesn't matter. The Bible, now listen to the words, the Bible is the sole authority for faith and practice, not because it is factual or even because it is true, but because God has spoken through it to us and still does so by his Holy Spirit. Isn't that an amazing contradiction in terms? The Bible is our authority. Of course, a bunch of it isn't true, but it is still God speaking to us. And we're thankful for God's word as authority. I found that an amazing letter. Now, getting down to prophets. You judge a prophet differently than you judge a pastor or a teacher. If you're evaluating what I say, you can take half of what I say and reject half of what I say. That is your right. Because, you see, I have no authority. 
I have no authority over your, your eternal life. I have no authority over your conscience. You will not be saved or lost depending on whether you like or don't like what I say. I have nothing to say about you and your relationship to God. That's outside of my area. Because you see, all I can do is take this book, study it for myself, and share with you what I have found from it. And you have to decide if I'm faithful to it or not. Because only here is my authority. I have no other authority than this. I have no other credentials given to me in any special way. And so you can judge a pastor or a teacher 75-25, 80-20, 50-50, and you're just fine in doing that. Can you judge Isaiah the same way? Paul, Jeremiah. Well, you see, our friends in the Jesus Seminar did. They judged the Gospels. They decided 50-50, 80-20, which parts are right? Which parts are wrong? That is the agenda of those who reevaluate the Bible in this way. But then you see you're faced with a dilemma. Which parts do you accept? Which parts do I accept? Which parts do we all accept? We have no agreement, no unanimity. Not one sentence in the Gospel of John could they agree totally that was a, a product of inspiration. No unanimity because no authority outside of the human mind. So you cannot judge a prophet in the same way you judge a pastor or a teacher because you see a pastor or a teacher interprets the word of God while a prophet gives the word of God. Two different purposes, two different gifts, two different rationales. And you see, if a prophet gives the word of God, he's either giving the word of God or he's giving his own opinions, one or the other. Those are the two options, of course. The other last is from Satan as well. You're either speaking what God says or you're speaking what you think about God. A pastor can do that, a prophet cannot. And if you're judging a prophet, you are faced with the uncomfortable dilemma for us modern, technological, sophisticated beings, 100% or 0%. We don't like those. We don't like it all or nothing. We want some wiggle room. We want some areas in which we can decide what might be and what, not, what might not be. And so to take Genesis chapter 1 as the authentic record of creation is just irresponsible today because we have better knowledge than that. Our evidence proves to us that Genesis 1 cannot be taken at face value. Or can it? You see, that's the question. That's the question. Is this book my authority or am I its authority? Is the scientific method its authority? One way or the other. 100% or zero. That's how you judge a prophet. And that's uncomfortable for us. We don't like those all or nothing statements. What we're going to do right now is we're going to go through this outline we've, you've been given. They are all Ellen White statements. And we're going to see what she says. Not what I say about her or someone else says about her. What she says. And then we'll have to make a decision about what she says. Now I want to make sure... Do we all have copies of the outline? Raise your hand if you don't have a copy. Make sure we have one right now. There are some up in the, top, in the balcony that don't. Are we running out or do we have more? Do we have plenty? Still looks like we have plenty. All right, let's wait for a moment until everybody, including those in the balcony, have a copy. And then I'd like someone to be on the watch for people who come in late to make sure they get one as they come in as well. Because everything we do this afternoon will be based on reading this together. We're going to start with the third paragraph on the first page. 
She's referring to herself in the third person here. Sister White is not the originator of these books. They contain the instruction that during her life work God has been giving her. They contain the precious comforting light that God has graciously given his servant to be given to the world. So those refer to her books. I do not write one article in the paper expressing merely my own ideas. They are what God has opened before me in vision, the precious rays of light shining from the throne. These are articles in Youth Instructor Review, Signs, etc., Weak and trembling, I arose at three o'clock in the morning to write to you. God was speaking through clay. You might say that this communication was only a letter. Yes, it was a letter, but prompted by the Spirit of God to bring before your minds things that had been shown me. In these letters which I write, in the testimonies I bear, I am presenting to you that which the Lord has presented to me. So three categories now. The books, the articles, and the personal letters, which we have mostly in the testimonies to the church. Three categories of her writings. She says she doesn't write her own opinions. She says that. We'll have to evaluate that. She says this is what God has revealed through her. God is either teaching his church, reproving their wrongs, and strengthening their faith, or he is not. This work is of God, or it is not. God does nothing in partnership with Satan. My work bears the stamp of God or the stamp of the enemy. There is no halfway work in the matter. The testimonies are of the Spirit of God or of the devil. She really puts it on the line, doesn't she? Doesn't pull any punches. Doesn't get vague. Not ambiguous. We don't have to guess is what she's meaning. She's saying, you decide. You see, back in the early days of her visions, she had a lot of physical manifestations accompanying those visions. They kind of dropped away in the later years. But as we would be speaking here, if she would be speaking or someone else, we might see Ellen White taken off in vision. And maybe for an hour or so, she wouldn't be breathing. They performed tests. She wouldn't be breathing during that period of time. She would hold a Bible above her head, turn to the pages, etc. What that proved, and only what that proved, is that she was not faking it. These were not magic tricks. This was not self-induced. She was being manipulated by an outside supernatural source. That was the only possible explanation that could be given. But see, that doesn't solve the problem, does it? What's the source? The devil can do things too, in mighty miraculous ways. And so now we are faced with a dilemma. Now that we know these visions are not trickery, where did they come from? And she says, God is either teaching his church or he is not. One way or the other, the decision must be made. And it's up to you to make that decision. So she puts it on the line for us. The next paragraph is the most important one we will read this afternoon. Many times in my experience, I have been called upon to meet the attitude of a certain class who acknowledged that the testimonies were from God, but took the position that this matter and that matter were Sister White's opinion and judgment. This suits those who do not love reproof and a correction and who, if their ideas are crossed, have occasion to explain the difference between the human and the divine. If the preconceived opinions or particular ideas of some are crossed and being reproved by testimonies, they have a burden at once to make plain their position to discriminate between the testimonies, defining what is Sister White's human judgment and what is the word of the Lord. Everything that sustains their cherished ideas is divine, and the testimonies to correct their errors are human, Sister White's opinions. They make of none effect the counsel of God by their tradition. Now, does that ring a bell as to something we were just talking about ten minutes ago? What about our friends in the scholarly world who treat the Bible in exactly the same way? 
a certain class, notice she says, who acknowledge that the Bible is from God. The testimonies are from God. Yes, the Bible is from God. It's the Word of God. But not that story told by Jesus in that chapter. Not that miracle. Not that parable. See, it's identical. It's the same thing. 100% the same. And now she's saying, this is what's happening to my writings. People will say, yes, I believe in the writings of Ellen White. I believe she was inspired, but not that chapter. When I was teaching at Pacific Union College and my colleague Desmond Ford was uh, talking about his perceptions of uh, Ellen White, he believed in the spirit of prophecy. He believed that Ellen White was inspired by God. But he said that that chapter in the book Great Controversy that talked about Christ moving from the holy place to the most holy place in 1844 was not given to her by God. The people around her believed that. She was impressed with their ideas and she inserted it into the book. Well, makes sense, I guess, if you're wise enough to know which parts of her writings came from men and which parts from God. So you can do it his way, or you can do it the way of others, saying what she wrote in Councils on Diet is really not relevant to us today. What she wrote in the book Education doesn't work today. What she wrote about medical missionary work, why that is impossible to even deal with, those are not relevant for today. Does it make any difference which part we choose? We can take this section and toss it aside, this section and put it over here. And do we deny the spirit of prophecy? No, of course not. See, we're not talking about the book written by Walter Ray. Anybody remember the name of that book? The White Lie. She lied to us. Not talking about that. We're not talking about what happened in the years following 1981 when pastors were burning the books of Ellen White in their backyards. We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about everyone who says, I believe that Ellen White received messages from God, that she was a messenger of God, but not that chapter, not that page, not that paragraph. That's what she's talking about here. That's what makes of none effect the counsel of God by their tradition. And are you aware that she says the last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect? Not deny, not burn, not throw out, but to make of none effect. In other words, everyone saying, I believe, but not that section. That's the last deception of Satan, which tells me another reason that we better believe we're in the very end of time. This is not in your outline, but I thought you might be interested in it. My brethren have trifled and caviled and criticized and commented and demerited and picked and chosen a little and refused much until the testimonies mean nothing to them. Picking and choosing. You'll find that in the Ellen White 1888 materials, page 800. And one more. I have my work to do to meet the misconceptions of those who suppose themselves able to say what is testimony from God and what is human production. If those who have done this work, what work? Deciding between what God gave and what she wrote. If those who have done this work continue in this course, satanic agencies will choose for them. Wow. Wow. If you continue to specify what parts are Ellen White's opinions and what parts are the visions of the Lord, you'll have help. You'll have help in doing that. It will be satanic agencies that will help you choose. 
Those who have helped souls to feel at liberty to specify what is of God in the testimonies and what are the uninspired words of Sister White will find that they were helping the devil in his work of deception. Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 70. I wonder, I wonder how many are helping the devil today while saying we believe in Ellen White. We believe she is a messenger of God. Top of page 2. Do not, by your criticisms, take out all the force, all the point and power from the testimonies. Do not feel that you can dissect them to suit your own ideas, claiming that God has given you ability to discern what is light from heaven and what is the expression of mere human wisdom. If the testimonies speak not according to the word of God, reject them, the whole thing. Christ and Belial cannot be united. We do not have the luxury of saying that chapter is not from God. She is, not a pro- she is not a pastor or a teacher. She is a claimed prophet, messenger. If you don't like the word prophet, fine. Mouthpiece or messenger will do just fine. She has proclaimed that God has spoken through her. If she is not, get rid of those books right now. You know, a prophet has a tough job. I'm so glad I'm not called to be a prophet. I don't, wouldn't like either of the, there are two things a prophet has to do that I wouldn't like to do at all. Number one, a prophet has to speak whatever God says, no matter how many toes are stepped on. That is no fun. Nathan coming to David, thou art the man. You are the one who is destroying Israel. You, the man beloved of God, you are causing reproach to God's cause. You are the rich man who killed the poor man's lamb. Boy, you take your life in your hands when you do that. There's no Supreme Court and 20 years of of re-evaluation of your case. You go right out and get beheaded real quick. That's what a prophet has to do. Jeremiah found out. The legends are that Isaiah got sawed in half in a tree trunk. That's what happens when prophets speak and offend the king. And then there's the second thing a prophet does. In the testimony sent to blank, I have given you the light God has given to me. In no case have I given my own judgment or opinion. I have enough to write of what has been shown me without falling back on my own opinions. Skip to the Chrysler letter. I have no light on the subject as to who would constitute the 144,000. Please tell my brethren that I have nothing presented before me regarding the circumstances concerning which they write, and I can set before them only that which has been presented to me. A gentleman came to her from somewhere in Iowa, clear across to where Ellen White was retired in Elmshaven, wanting to know what the will of the Lord was for him, where he should work for God. Her reply, I am not at liberty to write to our brethren concerning your future work. I have received no instruction regarding the place where you should locate. If the Lord gives me definite instruction concerning you, I will give it you. But I cannot take upon myself responsibilities that the Lord does not give me to bear. Wasn't that rude of Ellen White? This poor man traveled not by airplane, but probably in dusty, sooty trains all the way across the United States to get an answer from the prophet of the Lord, and she sends him back home. Couldn't she at least have said, tell me your qualifications, explain your resume a little bit to me, and I'll tell you where I think you should work. Couldn't she have done that? Did the man want to know what Ellen White thought? 
Is that why he traveled across the country? He had no interest in what Ellen White thought. He wanted to know what the Lord was going to say to him directly. He wanted a Urim and a Thummim, and I would be so happy for a Urim and Thummim today. I don't know about you. What is the Lord's will concerning me right now? I want to know. What if Ellen White had given him her opinion? He would have taken that as the word of the Lord. And so poor Ellen White has to say, I can't tell you anything. I can't even tell you what a pastor would tell you. You go home and check with your friends. Talk to your pastor. He might give you some advice. She probably said something like that to him. That's the second work of a prophet. Keep your mouth shut when the Lord has not spoken. You see why I'm saying I'm so happy I'm not a prophet? I'm not under those restrictions. I can give you tons of opinions. And you have to listen to them. Two things that a prophet does. You speak when the Lord has spoken. You keep your mouth shut. Now remember, we're talking about counsel to the church or counsel to people. We're not talking about saying hello on the street, talking to her husband, working with your family. No, a prophet can be a normal human being. We're talking about counsel to the church, counsel to individuals from the Lord. A prophet speaks when the prophet is told. A prophet keeps silent when the Lord has not spoken. Two very difficult things that a prophet has to wrestle with that none of the rest of us have to deal with. Well, at this point, you see, uh, Ellen White is making some strong statements, isn't she? Some things that we have to decide about. She said this, again, this is not in your outline. I find myself frequently placed where I dare give neither assent nor dissent to propositions that are submitted to me. For there is danger that any words I may speak shall be reported as something that the Lord has given me. It is not always safe for me to express my own judgment, for sometimes when someone wishes to carry out his own purpose, he will regard any favorable word I may speak as special light from the Lord. I shall be cautious in all my movements. Do you see the dilemma of the prophet? Really having to be extra careful about any word that comes out of her mouth. You'll find that in the Ellen White biography by Arthur White, volume 6, page 135. All right, so now she has put the dilemma before us as to what she says. Go to the top of page 3 with me. We will now read the second most important paragraph this afternoon. I saw the state of some who stood on present truth. That means believing present truth. But disregarded the visions, the way God had chosen to teach in some cases those who erred from Bible truth. I saw that in striking against the visions, they did not strike against the worm, the feeble instrument that God spake through, but against the Holy Ghost. I saw it was a small thing to speak against the instrument, but it was dangerous to slight the words of God. And so right here, we've come now to a second major point. I really don't care about Ellen White. I don't think you expected me to say that, did you? Let me say it again. I really don't care about Ellen White. Because if God's will had been done, <clears throat> that name would never occur this afternoon. It would never come up. What was God's will? <clears throat> what was God's will for the Seventh-day Adventist Church in terms of a messenger? Who did he choose first? A man, William Foy. He gave the messages for a while, and then he stopped. 
<coughs> some of that dinner is still there. <coughs> and then God tried again, didn't he? Hazen Foss. But Hazen Foss was afraid. He was a mulatto, mixed race. He was afraid that he would be mocked, ridiculed. He would be laughed at, scorned, and he was afraid. And he didn't give the messages at all. So what does God do? He tries again. He takes the weakest of the weak. Did Ellen White have the right to say no to God? Why couldn't she have said no just like the first two? It was in her right. <clears throat> if Ellen White had said no, who would we be discussing today? Oh, we can offer a lot of opinions on that. We have no clue. But we would have a name, I guarantee you, because God wouldn't have quit trying. Not at the end of time. Not with things at stake for his cleansing of the sanctuary. Not with the final atonement beginning. He would not have abandoned his people. He would have tried ten times, if he had to, to find someone to give his messages. You begin to say now why I say I don't care about Ellen White. I only care about what saith the Lord. That's all that matters to me. I want to know what God says. I do not want to know Ellen White's opinion about what God says. I want to know what God's will and God's word is for me. Thank you, my brother. A rescue in time. And so right here, we are needing to know what God's will is. God's word, God's statements to us. We are needing to know that. And we need it desperately. Someone asked a teacher of mine, what do you think? Did Ellen White really understand these things that she was writing when she was only 19 years of age? Can we really take that as authoritative? She was too young. And my teacher scratched his English beard, and he said, how old was the Holy Spirit right then? And that is really the issue, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is the one who gives the messages, not the individual prophets. They do not originate these messages. God has something else in mind. So right here, the issue is very clear. Did Ellen White give these messages? Did Ellen White speak uh, or did she not? Now notice, I did not re uh, cover the last sentence in this paragraph. Let's look at that for a moment. I saw if they were in error... And God chose to show them their errors through visions, and they disregarded the teachings of God through visions. They would be left to take their own way and run in the way of error and think they were right until they would find it out too late. Wow, what a sentence. One sentence that describes the past 50 years in Adventist history more accurately than anything else that I have ever written or read in the spirit of prophecy. One sentence. If they were in error... And God showed them their error, and they disregarded it. They would be left to take their own way and think they were right. We could, and I have a whole other message on that, we could spend the rest of our day discussing specific areas in which God has spoken and we have ignored. Point after point after point. Whether it's in the medical field, whether it's in the way we establish our institutions, whether it's in the way we educate children from grade school on up, whether it's in the books we publish, whether it's in the way we administrate and, and pastors operate. I've just named a few, just a handful. 
The list is virtually endless of areas in which God has spoken sometimes two or three full books of speaking, and we have set it aside for one pretext or another. It doesn't work anymore. It isn't profitable. It doesn't, uh, the society won't allow it, etc., 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 and on the excuses go. My friends, it doesn't make any difference if we deny the spirit of prophecy, or if we say some parts were her own opinions, or if we ignore them and don't read them. It doesn't make any difference. We are making of none effect the word of God by our tradition. We do have traditions in the Adventist church. I have lived in those traditions all of my life. And when you've lived in a tradition all of your life, it's the only way it is. You don't have any other options. This is, the way li this is the way it is done, period. And anyone who suggests anything different is not to be accepted or believed because they are not with the way things are done. My friends, I believe we will have a whole lot more to unlearn than we are to learn in most cases because most of what we have learned is tradition, unfortunately. I'm talking the way about the way we do things, but not talking about our doctrines. I'm talking about the way we do things as individuals and as institutions. The way we operate is mostly based on tradition, not the Word of God. And when the Word of God comes into play, it's like something strange and new because we have never heard it before. What reserve power has the Lord with which to reach those who have cast aside his warnings and reproofs and have accredited the testimonies of the Spirit of God to no higher source than human wisdom? In the judgment, what can you who have done this offer to God as an excuse for turning from the evidence he has given you that God was in the work? What reserve power does he have if we've set the prophet aside? Now, you know prophets say things that are hard to be understood. Peter even said that about Paul, you remember? It's easy to misunderstand a prophet's statement, especially what Paul said on grace and law. Has that been misunderstood in human history? Ellen White said something that has been greatly misunderstood. She said she was the lesser light to lead men and women to the greater light. Lesser, greater. What connotations do those words have in our minds? You know what it means. Lesser in importance, lesser in authority, lesser in inspiration, lesser in clarity. Lesser, not as good as. All right, let's examine Lesser for a moment. Let's see what she said first. The written testimonies are not to give new light, but to impress vividly upon the heart the truths of inspiration already revealed. Man's duty to God and to his fellow man has been distinctly specified in God's word, yet but few of you are obedient to the light given. Additional truth is not brought out, but God has through the testimony simplified the great truths already given and in his own chosen way brought them before the people to awaken and impress the mind with them that all may be left without excuse. No new truth. It's all in the Bible. It's all here. But I am explaining a little more carefully what's in there. In ancient times, God spoke to men by the mouth of prophets and apostles. In these days, he speaks to them by the testimonies of his spirit. There was never a time when God instructed his people more earnestly than he instructs them now concerning his will and the course that he would have them pursue. Does that sound like less importance? Never a time when God instructed his people more earnestly than he does now? All right, let's see what we can come up with here. 
All truth comes from God. All light comes from God. There is no truth that does not have its source in God. But God has not chosen to speak to us directly because of the problem of sin entering our world. Instead, he has communicated to us through intermediaries. He spoke first to Moses, and then Moses had to tell us what God told him. Wrote it down in books. Now, if God's will had been done, how big would your Bible be? It wouldn't be this big. If you were to go over and ask a Samaritan today, show me your Bible, they would show you the Torah, the five books of Moses, because they do not accept the rest of the Old Testament, just the books of Moses, even to this day. If you were to ask an Israelite in the time of David, show me your Bible, your sacred scriptures, he would show you the Torah, the five books of Moses, centuries after Moses' time. The Torah was still the Bible. The Bible, the Torah, was the Bible of Israel for about a thousand years. The other prophets added the ideas, but they were not the scriptures, the Bible in the minds of the people. And so if God, remember, when Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, is it really new? Brand new idea? Out of the, out of the blue? Or is it right out of Moses' writings? You check back and it's there. It's in the writings of Moses, just covered up by centuries of neglect. New commandments are renewed commandments. Right out of the, the writings of Moses. If God's will had been done, all they would have needed would have been the five books of Moses and they could have welcomed the Messiah and finished the mission God had given them to do. But you see, it didn't work that way, did it? Almost immediately, remember, within one generation after Joshua, when the elders all died, what happened? They went to worshiping idols, and so God tried again. This time he spoke through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all of the Old Testament prophets, and they communicated to us what God had told them, but now they had another job to do. They had to reflect back to the Scriptures, the Torah, the Bible, and they had to be tested by it. When Isaiah and Micaiah, that's not Micah, Micaiah, were both telling the people what the Lord had said, how were the people supposed to figure out who was telling the truth and who was a liar? Both speaking at the same time. Both claiming messages from God. They had to go back to Moses' writings, check both of them out, see who was teaching in harmony with Scripture and who was denying Scripture. It's the only way they could tell. So Isaiah was tested by Moses before he was accepted. Who is greater and who is lesser in those two categories while Isaiah is speaking? The greater is Moses, the one who is the test. The lesser is the one who is being tested by the greater. Isaiah is lesser light. Moses is greater light. Well, it didn't stop there. You know the rest of the story. They rejected all of what God had said through the prophets by the fact that they killed the one the prophets had all prophesied of. And so God tried again. This time he spoke to Paul and all of the New Testament writers, and they spoke to us, but now they had the job of reflecting on the entire Old Testament. That's what we call it. They call it the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And they had to be tested by this Old Testament corpus of Scripture. And so for Paul, who was lesser and who was greater? The Old Testament was greater, Paul was lesser, tested by it. Remember he told the Bereans that they were better than the ones in Thessalonica because they checked him out in the Old Testament to see if what he was teaching was true? He recommended that. He welcomed that. 
And of course, then we have the final step, and God at the end of time speaks through one more messenger, and she speaks to us, but now she points to the Bible, she holds the Bible up in her very last presentation at the general conference, and she says, I direct you to this book. She reflects the Bible as the greater light, while she is the lesser light. Greater and lesser. What does it mean? It has to do with scope with purpose, with even geography. The Bible is for the entire world since it has been codified. Ellen White is for the very end of time, for that generation who will be alive when, they, when Jesus comes. The Bible was written to direct all men to Jesus Christ. Ellen White was written and her writings came to direct us to what his final work of atonement is in the most holy place. Her message was focused on a different aspect of the work of God in the great controversy. Lesser in scope and purpose, but not lesser in importance, not lesser in inspiration, not lesser in authority. We must interpret correctly the words that have been given to us. They are vitally important right here. What is lesser and what is greater? I found this statement. Actually, I didn't find it. A friend of mine found it and put it in a paper. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets, page um, 364. It's not in your outline. If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity for the ordinance of circumcision, And if the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant, they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon the tables of stone. We would not have a Ten Commandment law written on stone. What would they do today? They couldn't write it up on stone today. We wouldn't have it if God's will would have been done. And had the people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need of the additional directions given to Moses. You see the principle here? Light given according to light needed. When disobedience, God gives more light. He gives more information, more help. And the person who wrote this paper reflecting on this said this, What we have just read reveals that it is is as reasonable to say that we will dispense with all Scripture but Sinai as it is to argue that we can dispense with all revelation but Scripture. It is as reasonable to say that we will dispense with all written revelation since it appears that none would ever have been given had men related themselves properly to the Abrahamic covenant. So, what should we study? Should we study just the Old Testament? Just the Torah? Or when God tells us more, do we need to hear more? Because there's a problem. 20 million inspired words. I don't know if that's true. I'll let somebody else count that up in Ellen White's writings. 20 million inspired words testify to the fact that the scriptures are not treated with respect and deference, that the scriptures are not eaten as food for the soul, and so, listen carefully, this will not be nice to hear, And so our gracious God has given his word to us in a more digestible form, a form more suited to be handled by the mental digestive systems of degenerate 20th century moderns. Oh, we never think of ourselves in that way, do we? 
We are so wise, we can send people to the moon, we can do all kinds of things, but um, only self-flattery keeps us from recognizing this abundantly evident truth. That the only reason we have been given the spirit of prophecy is we were stupid in not understanding the Bible correctly. And because you can have 300 churches come out of one Bible. And so God tries to help us stupid people. Give us a little help for our degenerated mental abilities. That's the reason for this gift that has been given to us. So, if we're trying to understand a subject, any subject, I don't care what it is, trying to know what God's will is on this subject, here is what we must do as Seventh-day Adventists today. First, we take this book, folks. This is the greater light. Don't start anywhere else. This is the greater light. Yes, I know it's hard to understand. Yes, I know it. you have to have sometimes a commentary right alongside of you to try to figure out what it's saying. But this is the Word of God. Don't get lazy. Take the Word of God. Dig into it. Now, can we say, I've done my job? No, we've done half our job. Now we must go to the lesser light and dig in, find everything that has been written in the lesser light on the same subject. Only after we've done both of those things is it safe to insert our own opinion. You see what the problem is? We don't do it that way. We read what this book says, and then we form an opinion. And then we read what the Spirit of Prophecy says. It doesn't agree with our opinion of what the Bible says, and so what do we do? We begin to question what Ellen White said as authoritative. Our own opinion gets into the mix just as much as the opinion of the scholars gets into the mix on the quest for the historical Jesus. Our own opinion gets way too much into the process. A teacher friend of mine said on one occasion, I will not allow Ellen White to have veto power over the Bible. Now that's an interesting concept. That means the Bible says something. Ellen White vetoes what the Bible says, and I won't allow her to do that. I'll take what the Bible says. He believed in the spirit of prophecy. He did a major research project on the spirit of prophecy. But he said, I will not allow Ellen White to have veto power over the Bible. At that point, he decides what will be vetoed and what will not be. He's vetoing Ellen White on that point because he says the Bible says this, Ellen White says that, I veto Ellen White. I won't allow her to contradict the Bible. Once again, exactly what our scholarly friends have done to the Bible, we are doing to Ellen White by those most respected to interpret the writings of the spirit of prophecy. This was a long project of interpretation and understanding of how inspiration works that he was involved in. Bible first, spirit of prophecy second, my opinion always last. That's the only safe way that's the only way you're going to come to truth. Any other way, you will be involved in error of one kind or another, and you will think it is right, and you'll find it out too late, and your soul's salvation may be in jeopardy. That's the seriousness of this subject. Remember I said, this is the most serious subject I talk about. All right, now, one last point of our study this afternoon. Let us go back to our outlines again. Back in the early days of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, 
groups of people, and you well know the story, came together to study the Word of God, sometimes all night with prayer and fasting, to try to understand what God's Word says. Listen carefully. Doctrinal authority. When they came to the point in their study where they said, We can do nothing more. The Spirit of the Lord would come upon me. I would be taken off in vision, and a clear explanation of the passages we had been studying would be given me. When would that be true? We can do nothing more. When they had it all figured out? When it was clear to them? Or when they were stuck? All right. At that point, this young woman untrained, would be taken in vision, and she would come back with messages. Now, we want to examine examine one example, and I think it will illustrate what happened. On page 4, on page 4, halfway down page 4. Our first conference was at Valney and Brother Arnold's barn. There were about 35 present, all that could be collected in that part of the state. There were hardly two agreed. Each was strenuous for his views, declaring that they were according to the Bible. Brother Arnold held that the thousand years of Revelation 20 were in the past, and that the 144,000 were those raised at Christ's resurrection. And as we had the emblem of our dying Lord before us and was about to commemorate his sufferings, Brother Arnold arose and said he had no faith in what we were about to do, that the sacrament was a continuation of the Passover to be observed but once a year. These strange differences of opinion rolled a heavy weight upon me, as, as, especially as Brother Arnold spoke of the thousand years being in the past. I knew he was in error, and great grief pressed my spirits. The light of heaven rested upon me. I was soon lost to earthly things. My accompanying angel presented before me some of the errors of those present, and also the truth in contrast with their errors, that these discordant views which they claimed to be according to the Bible were only according to their opinion of the Bible and that their errors must be yielded and they unite upon the third angel's message. Before we can understand what Ellen White is really saying here, we need to understand something else that is happening right at this point. In the early days of the message, when our numbers were few, we studied diligently to understand the meaning of many scriptures. At times it seemed as if no explanation could be given. My mind seemed to be locked to an understanding of the word. What was going on here? During this whole time, I could not understand the reasoning of the brethren. My mind was locked, as it were, and I could not comprehend the meaning of the scriptures we were studying. This was one of the greatest sorrows of my life. I was in this condition of mind until all the principal points of our faith were made clear to our minds in harmony with the Word of God. The brethren knew that when not in vision, I could not understand these matters, and they accepted as light direct from heaven the revelations given. You'll find those references in Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 38, and Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 207. She says, these experiences were repeated over and over and over again. Thus, many truths of the third angel's message were established point by point. Now catch that very carefully. Here, put yourself in the barn. Let's just be in that barn for a few minutes right now. Thirty-five people there, hardly two agree. A young woman off in vision. She comes back from the vision And she begins to speak to those 35 people. Brother Arnold, the Lord just showed me. His angel stood by me. And he told me that to tell you that what you are teaching is error and you must stop teaching it immediately. What would you do if you were Brother Arnold? 
What do you do when you're walking down the street or chatting across the back fence and your friend says to you, this Sabbath business is nonsense. You are making a mountain out of a molehill. The Bible doesn't teach it at all. You say, yeah, that's right. Let's just forget it. Or do you ask a question or ask a a favor? Show me from the word of God that what you're saying is true and I'll accept it. Fair question? Couldn't Brother Arnold ask that question of Ellen in that meeting? Couldn't he have said, show to me, give me a Bible study, prove to me that what I have studied out from the Word of God is wrong, and I'll stop teaching what I'm doing, stop stop teaching what I'm teaching? Couldn't he have said that? Would it have done any good? Remember what we just read? What was wrong with Ellen White's mind right now? It was locked. She couldn't understand the reasoning of the brethren. She couldn't follow their logic. She couldn't go through their Bible studies and understand what was going on. Like your mind today, you're trying to follow logic. You're trying to go through evidence. You're trying to sort it out. She couldn't do any of that. Her mind was locked. She could not follow their logic. She could not stand up and say, Brother Arnold, here it is. We're going to have a 20-minute Bible study on the thousand years. We're going to have a little Bible study on the 144,000. All she could do is tell Brother Arnold, the angel stood by me, he gave me these texts, and this is what I'm sharing with you. What would you do if you were Brother Arnold? (laughs) All of your study. You'd study this out for a year or two. And now here was an untrained woman telling you, you've got to quit teaching it right now. See, it's one thing to be convinced of your error by logic and evidence. And it's another thing to believe that God says what he says when you can't figure out why he says it. Why do you keep the seventh-day Sabbath? Now think about it just for a moment. Because you've got evidence on your side that the seven-day week and the seventh day is more important than a ten-day week and a sixth day of rest? Hmm? Where's your evidence that the seven-day week is better than a ten-day week or a five-day week? And the seventh day is any inherent, has any inherent value over the third day of the week. Where's your evidence? There's not a shred of it. You can look throughout the sky, throughout the motions of the stars, throughout the revolving of the earth, and there is nothing. What is the only reason that you believe that the seventh day is better than another day for the worship of God? Because God said so. And you haven't the faintest clue why. You don't know why. And God didn't tell us why. He just says, I blessed it and I sanctified it. And I rested on that day. He could have chosen any other system, folks. He could have. It was his prerogative. He arbitrarily chose that way and then created the human mechanism to be in harmony with it. He made it all fit together just nicely. A seven-day work does work better than a ten-day week. They've tried it. Seven day does work. But that's not the reason we keep the Sabbath day. We keep it because God says so. If he would have said third day, we'd all be Tuesday keepers. God says so. That takes faith, you see. That's not being convinced by logic. That's not the evidence overwhelming us. That takes faith in the one who gives the commandment, in the one we trust. That takes faith. And you see, Brother Arnold had to decide between evidence and faith that day. 
The evidence was, this is what my scripture study has told me. This is what I've, the conclusion I've come to because of what the scripture has said to me. And faith that God had said, you're wrong and you better stop teaching it. Why I'm wrong, I don't know. But the angel said I'm wrong and I believe it. Wow, does that take faith. Far more faith than most of us are ever ex- exercised in our lifetime. Faith in what God says when we don't know why he said it. And Brother Arnold had a tough decision. And remember, it says there were hardly two agreed. I think a few other people had some tough decisions that day. I don't think Ellen White stopped with Brother Arnold that day. I think she went around the circle. And she said, Brother so-and-so, you're right. Brother so-and-so, you're not accurate. This was, was, this was a very important day because the last sentence describes it. Our meeting ended victoriously. Truth gained the victory. They did not walk out of that room with 35 different opinions. They walked out with an understanding of truth that day. Why? Because they surrendered their own opinions, not on the basis of logic and evidence, but on the basis of faith in God's way of speaking to us through his inspired chosen messenger, his mouthpiece. That was faith that day. Faith in God's way of doing it, even though we might not choose that way of doing it for ourselves. Go to the last page with me. At that time, one error after another pressed in upon us. Ministers and doctors brought in new doctrines. We would search the scriptures with much prayer, and the Holy Spirit would bring the truth to our minds. Sometimes whole nights would be devoted to searching the scriptures and earnestly asking God for guidance. Companies of devoted men and women assembled for this purpose. The power of God, now this sentence, folks, the power of God would have come upon me And I was enabled clearly to define what is truth and what is error. That is the most disliked sentence, perhaps, in the entire study of the spirit of prophecy. I have gone through our entire school system, from grade school to doctoral level, and never once did I hear this word about the spirit of prophecy. I heard words like confirm, help, sustain, meaning that when our pioneers got together in those early Bible studies, those Sabbath conferences we call them, they studied the scriptures, they sorted it all out, they came to conclusions about what the the doctrines of the church would be, and then Ellen White would come along with a vision later and confirm what they had studied, support their conclusions. That's not the way it happened. We've been deathly afraid of that. Deathly afraid of it. She did not use the word confirm. She used the word define. There's a huge difference between those terms. To define means when things are in flux, when they are uncertain, a definition is given. A decision is rendered. And then we stand with that decision. Notice the next sentence. As the points of our faith were thus established, our feet were placed upon a solid foundation. How did we come to the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? I was taught all the way through just by Bible study, prayer, and fasting. And I was taught wrong. It's Bible study, prayer, and fasting. And when that didn't bring us to unity, God gave us an extra push through his mouthpiece because we couldn't make it ourselves. Some points we got just fine. How to begin the Sabbath? Sundown? 12 o'clock, 
6 o'clock. Much difference in the early years. And finally, there were papers written on the subject, and we came to unity on sundown time based on Scripture. We didn't need the spirit of prophecy on that one. We figured it out from the Bible itself. And God said, fine. But when we could not agree, we can do nothing more. Over, Ellen White says, and over and over again that happened. When they were stuck. When the evidence was not clear to their minds. When the 35 in the room could not agree. God would send special help to define. I've heard it said that Ellen White is not a theological policeman. She is a theological decider. You don't have to use the word policeman if you want. Don't like the word. But she has decision-making authority just as Paul did, just as Jeremiah did, and just as Moses did. She has decision-making authority. Authority is the word, folks. Authority. She has that authority to speak what God says when it contradicts traditional views, previously held opinions. And that's the way our doctrines were established, my friends. Do you begin to see why it is so important that we are clear on this subject? Let's just take another you know, detour here. If it is true that sometimes Ellen White spoke her own opinion, as we are now hearing, that sometimes she inserted her own views into her writings, then guess what, folks? Some of our doctrines are the opinions of men. We say of other churches, that's what disqualifies them for being the remnant church, don't we? They teach for doctrines the commandments of men. If some of our doctrines, 28 of them we have now, if some of them were the product of a woman's opinion about Scripture, then we are the biggest cult going. What's a cult? It is not what Walter Martin thinks a cult is, folks. A cult is when we place the opinion of a human being above the Word of God. I had the awesome opportunity to speak in Los Angeles last year in something called the People's Temple. Any of you have some memories that reach back a couple of decades? The People's Temple where Jim Jones proclaimed his vision of utopia. It is now the Spanish Central Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's why I was there. It is a huge, huge building. It is a temple building. It's not a church edifice. It's like a cathedral. And in that building, Jim Jones led the people to, to believe in him above anything else to the point where they were willing to kill themselves because he said so. Now that's a cult. Anytime we place the word of a human being above the word of God, we are a cult. If Ellen White speaks part-time for God and part-time for her own opinion, we are a cult. The only way we are not a cult is if Ellen White speaks 100% for God. That's the only way Christianity is not a cult. They thought it was a cult in the first century. But Paul was speaking 100% for God, and therefore it was from, from God himself. It was not a cult. The difference between a cult is simply a man's opinion or God's opinion. God's truth or man's truth. And that's why we'd better have full assurance that Ellen White spoke 100% for God because she helped to define our doctrines. She was in the decision-making process contradicting some of the views that we thought were doctrinal truth. And she said, no, this is the way it is. And we walked out of the room in agreement. 
Notice on this same page, in Gospel Workers 307, halfway down the page, the foundations of our faith were laid at the beginning of our work by prayerful study of the Word and by revelation. Did you notice both of those? How did we get the foundations of our faith? Yes, prayerful study of the Word. And yes, a vision to a young woman when we couldn't agree. Revelation. Two ways in which Adventist truth was founded. We are very, very nervous about that today. We don't want to hear about that because we're afraid of the label of cult as has been defined by the cult labelers. And so we will not accept what really happened back in the early days of the Advent movement. What I'm saying to you is back then they had a lot of faith. They had to have a lot of faith in the inspired messages given by God through his servant. Do we have anywhere close to that faith today? Do we have the same faith that those who formed our beliefs had that this was God's work? Look at the last paragraph. All who believe the Lord has spoken through Sister White and has given her a message will be safe from the many delusions that will come in these last days. Remember where I started today? Those who are clear on this subject will probably make it through and those who are unclear will be deceived. Will be deceived because Satan is going to throw at us bigger deceptions than we have ever seen up to this point. And they're going to sound so right. Listen, how many Adventists are being deceived by a false gospel right now? And that's just a minor deception yet. He hasn't even impersonated Christ yet. How many deceptions are still coming? Do we believe that the Lord has spoken in this way? One of the vice presidents of the Adventist church said it so nicely. Every church member will either believe the spirit of prophecy or be deceived before the end of time. It's about the way it is, I'm afraid. I believe. You see, there are tests that are coming for the world. The biggest test coming for the world is which day is God's day of worship? That will be the deciding issue. I really don't think that's the test issue for Adventists today. The test issue for Adventists today is the subject I'm talking about. Do we believe in the full-orbed authority of God's messages through the spirit of prophecy, and are we obedient to them? I believe that's the test for Adventists today. That will prepare the way for us to stand for the, at the end of time. Even outside of Adventism, this is recognized. This is a doctoral candidate in Germany in 1965 writing her Ph.D. thesis. The Seventh-day Adventists still live in this, on the spirit of Ellen G. White, and only as far as this heritage lives on do the Adventists have a future. Interesting. Newsweek's religion editor, Kenneth Woodward, if it loses its founding mother, the church may find that it has lost its distinctive visionary soul. Straight language, outside of Adventism, looking in, perceiving where our strengths and our weaknesses lie. If it loses its founding mother, the church may find that it has lost its distinctive visionary soul. And so today, I want to challenge each one of you and me as well. Let's make up our minds. Let's get off the fence. Yes, let's take adequate time to review the evidence. Is Ellen White telling the truth or is she not telling the truth? Is she in harmony with the Bible or is she not in harmony with the Bible? Examine the evidence. 
but then don't sit in the valley of decision forever. Make a decision, either from God or from Satan, either God's word speaking to us or man's word to be discarded. One way or the other, the decision must rest with us. The decision is ours to make, and no one else can make it for for us. And I challenge each one of us, let's not play games here. Let's evaluate the evidence, the evidence, the claims that the prophet makes. Let's decide what we believe, and then let our lives be in harmony with that decision. Let us be faithful to what God has told us to be and to do. Before we close, I'm going to ask uh, our friend to come up to the front. Alfred Lee is with us today. He told me a little story last night that I want you all to hear. I'll ask him to be brief, but I want you to hear his story. And I think this microphone would be a good one to, uh, to use right here. We'll bring it back up and uh, hope it works. And just tell him what you told me right here, brother. I was teaching at Weimar College above Sacramento in the 80s, and uh, a Jewish rabbi came on campus. He told us most. But he hated the name of Christ. His aunt had been raped in Eastern Europe while a Catholic priest stood over her with a crucifix and said, This is what you get for killing. Jesus Christ. Now, can you imagine how that family felt about crucifixes and Christianity? They came to America, and Joe Kagan became a very highly educated high rabbi and was on Ronald Reagan's staff. He would never touch the Bible. He would rather burn the Bible than touch it, he said. But he got hold of a book called Patriarchs and Prophets. He started reading, my goodness, who is this Ellen White? At that time, I met him. He started asking these questions, and we spent a year or so together. Who was this Ellen? Where did she get her education? What university? Oh, she just had a third grade education. Where did she learn Hebrew. No, she didn't. I don't think she knew Hebrew. But he said the her sentence structure is Hebrew. Have you ever noticed somebody quoting Ellen White? They don't have to tell you. Do you hear it? He said there's the rhythm, the the um, the, the the rhythm and the meter, the sentence structure and the, word, the, the expressions are Hebrew. Furthermore, the information in, in here, nobody who doesn't know Hebrew knows, only us very high rabbis. Because the Mishnah, she, he said, it's, it's Mishnaic, which was only translated into English 30 years ago, he said. After studying Ellen White, he fell in love with Jesus. And he said, I want to become a Christian. I was at his secret baptism, four of us, in the Bear River above Sacramento. He would not have accepted Jesus Christ from the Bible. Never. 
He accepted it through the writings of Ellen White. He fell in love with Jesus, and now he, he, he's passed away, but he called himself a confirmed Jew, a completed Jew. I now accept Jesus Christ as my Jewish Messiah. Thank you for sharing that. Isn't that a marvelous story? You'll have to decide for yourself what the evidence leads you to. Is this a messenger of God with a voice for me today? And can I listen to it with, with security? I'm going to end with one last thing that I don't normally do. We happen to be in Burden Hall. And right this afternoon, if my information is correct, Burden is being, John Burden's life is being reenacted as it relates to Loma Linda University on another part of this campus. Here is a third-person report. That's why I don't normally share third-person reports. I don't like that, but I will just for fun. Ellen White supposedly told John Burden in his last visit with her that God was going to lay her to rest in order to save her the heartbreaking experience of seeing her message to the church rejected. I have no idea if that happened or not. That's why I don't normally share it, but the possibility is it did happen. It is logical. The evidence seems to indicate that that could well have happened. And if she told John Burden that, should we be careful, very careful, as to what we do in relationship to her guidance to not only this institution, but the entire Seventh-day Adventist Church and our relationship to it. May God help us to be careful students of God's Word, both in his Bible and in his 20 million added words.